Welcome to the COVID What Comes Next podcast with Dr. Ashish Jha, Dean of the Brown University School of Public Health and a globally respected pandemic scientist and physician. Every week here, Dr. Jha will analyze events of the previous several days and offer his assessment and guidance for what lies ahead. I'm your host, G. Wayne Miller of the Providence Journal and the USA Today Network. Good morning, Ashish. How are you? Hey, good morning, Wayne. I'm well. How are you? I'm fine. It's a rainy day here in southern New England, but we get rain in April and now in May. So Exactly. Something about April showers and maybe May showers will give us yeah. more flowers. No, this, it's, uh, this is our 28th recording, 28 weeks in a row going back to October. Wow. I think this has been a great public service. And I, I know that from, you know, reactions I'm getting from many, many people, audience questions and so forth. So let's get right into it. Yeah. A number of important topics, as always, this week. And the New York Times has just reported that reaching herd immunity is unlikely in the U.S. It reaches that conclusion after speaking to several experts. And among the factors, they cite a dropping vac- vaccination rates, the emergence and spread of new variants. And the bottom line, as the Times wrote, is, quote, rather than making a long promised exit, the virus will most likely become a manageable threat that will continue to circulate in the United States for years to come, still causing hospitalizations and deaths, but in much smaller numbers. What do you make of that, Ashish? Um, I think it's mostly right, uh, but maybe I'm a little more optimistic. Um, So first of all, we don't know what the herd immunity threshold is. We think it's probably about 80% immunity. Uh, that means once 80% of population gets immune, uh, you will have uh, herd immunity in that community. But of course, this is a very dynamic thing, and that number may be higher or lower, depending on which variant is circulating around. But here are the three or four big picture points people need to take away. Um, one is that this is not about the level of immunity in America. This is about level of immunity in your state or in your city And so if the vaccination rates are very low in California, which they're not, but let's say for a second they are, and you live in Rhode Island, it's not a a major determinant of what's going to happen. It'll affect things a little bit because people travel back and forth from California to Rhode Island, Um, but it's really about what's happening in your community that matters. Second is that I actually am more optimistic than the Times article about whether we'll get to 80% immunity. Because remember, there's a lot of people who've been infected as well who have not gotten the vaccine. And so we've got to count their immunity in. Maybe infection-induced immunity is not as good as vaccine-induced immunity, but it's still valuable. Um, And then here's the big, big picture. Even if we don't, imagine that the the experts they talk to in the Times are right and I'm wrong, and we don't ever get to herd immunity. We may have a virus that circulates around that occasionally gets unvaccinated people sick, uh, it might cause the very rare breakthrough infections in somebody who's been vaccinated, but that person doesn't really end up getting sick. And we go about our daily lives and not be hampered by this in a major way. We do this with other viruses. We deal with influenza every year. We manage to go along. We will learn to live with this virus in a way that will allow us to have rich, normal lives. Uh, and as long as people are vaccinated, they're going to be able to be pretty, pretty well protected. So speaking of vaccination, a topic we 
get into pretty much every week. Uh, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines have been available since December on an emergency youth use authorization. It's always a tongue twister for me, <laughs> or EUA from the FDA. Some who are hesitant to get the vaccine point to the, this, the quote-unquote experimental nature, and, and cite that as a reason why they don't want to get vaccinated. Do you have any idea when the FDA and I guess the CDC would be involved too will move from EUA to full approval, meaning that quote-unquote experimental element, which isn't really experimental, isn't there? Yeah, so I have two thoughts on it. First is the reason why it's not that experimental is because the standards that the FDA used were actually quite rigorous, much more so than they would under normal emergency use authorization. And here's why. They knew that the moment that they authorized this, that tens of millions and now hundreds of millions of Americans were going to get it. So they were going to have a high bar for authorizing something uh, in, you know, and weren't going to just let this kind of slip through by the kind of barely above the bar. So, so the evidence that they used was really actually quite rigorous, even though it was done on an emergency basis. I believe that you're going to see both Moderna and Pfizer get what's called a full license. Um, probably, probably this sometime this summer, it could be as early as next month, uh, but certainly before the end of the summer. And it's not, in my mind, I already know that the evidence here has been so rigorous that they're going to clear that. They're well above the bar on full license. And, and maybe if that helps some people feel better, that'll be great. But what I've been saying to people is don't worry about the designation. Look at the underlying evidence and data. We have so much safety data on so many people. It's, we have way more evidence than we do for almost anything else we do. Yeah, it's, been, it's abundantly clear that both are safe and both are effective and people yep. should get vaccinated. But if this helps move some people who are on the fence, then absolutely yeah, all in great. Yeah. So another question, the FDA is set to authorize Pfizer, Pfizer for 12 to 15 year olds. And you tweeted just last night, actually, quote, this is big. So tell us why this is big. Yeah, it's big. It's really helpful. It's big for a few reasons. I mean, first is obviously, uh, a lot of 12 to 15 year olds out there who want to get vaccinated. Uh, I have two at home who are in that age range who are both uh, beyond excited. It's the only thing I've probably shared with them on, on the on coronavirus in the last year that they actually are excited to hear about. Uh, so so they're excited. But it's not about my family or just the 12 to 15 year olds. I mean, obviously, we want to protect them, but generally they're pretty low risk anyway. Um, there are two other huge benefits of, of them getting vaccinated. Um, one is that, that, look, they add to population immunity. Right now, uh, we have about 44% of, of Americans have gotten at least one shot. Uh, these 12 to 15-year-olds represent another about 4 or 5% of the population, about 16 million. Uh, if a large chunk of them, let's say half of them, get vaccinated in the next month or so, that'll cause another dampening effect on lowering infection rates across the country. And then last but not least, you know, when we had schools open uh, this past year, it was always the high schools that were the hardest because uh, they just tended to get more spread and we tended to have a more of a challenging time. Well, guess what? Every high schooler who wants a vaccine will be vaccinated. Every teacher in a high school and staff in a high school who wants to be vaccinated already is vaccinated. There just is no explanation anymore and no medical or public health reason that high schools cannot be open 100% full-time normal this fall. And I think this will really help with that as well. 
Yeah, that's good to hear. And so last question for you before we get to an audience question. A recent study in nature of 73,000 people in America who were infected by coronavirus but were not sick enough to be hospitalized had a 60% higher rate of death than non-infected people. And also this group experienced many long-haul symptoms involving just about any organ system or body part. Now, granted, this group was from the VA health system, but still, it's something. What, what do you make of it? What, yeah, what does that tell us? It's a really important study. And it's true that it's from the VA, which tends to have an older, more chronically ill, more male population. Um, but what it says to me is something that I have been saying for a long time, but it's just really good evidence that bolsters it, it is, which is that we should not be cavalier with this virus. We should not kind of work with the assumption that, hey, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. In fact, not at all. Uh, we know there are long-term complications. We know a lot of people have long-term symptoms. We know that there are people who have serious end organ damage. And now what we're seeing, and again, this is not definitive, but it's certainly pretty suggestive, uh, that it puts you at increased risk of, of death from complications. You may survive the initial infection, uh, but you may be at substantial risk of, of having more problems down the road. One of the many reasons why the crowd that talked about just letting it rip and letting everybody get infected it was so incredibly uh, ill-advised. And even now, young people who feel like they're healthy and invincible, you may not, the virus may not kill you, but it may cause long-term problems. All the more reasons you got to go get vaccinated and protect yourself. I think that's a very important message for, for that group of those groups of people. So we have an audience question. Anne from Raleigh, North Carolina writes, Dr. Jar and Mr. Miller. I like being called Mr. Miller. I don't often get in journalism. You don't often get called that. It's usually just Miller. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. You make situations and answers much easier to understand for those of us who don't have a medical background. Can you explain asymptomatic? I understand that you don't have symptoms, but how would you know when you are no longer contagious? Unless you are being tested regularly, you don't know you could be infecting others. Are you asymptomatic for a few days or weeks or longer? So a lot of questions wrapped in there. Yeah. Yeah. Some of which I can answer, some of which we don't know. So let's talk about, I'm going to talk about both asymptomatic status and I'm going to talk about spread because then contagiousness. So we know, for instance, that a lot of spread happens when people are asymptomatic. But the majority of that is from people who are really pre-symptomatic. So let me explain what I mean. Let's say I got infected today, which unlikely since I've been vaccinated, but let's say I was unvaccinated, I got infected today. Uh, in about three, four days, I would become, I would potentially become contagious, but may not have symptoms. And for a couple of days, I'd be walking around totally fine, feeling like I'm normal, but I could be spreading the virus. This is why the virus spreads so efficiently in pre-symptomatic people. Then a vast majority of those people will go on to develop symptoms. So let's say then at some point I develop symptoms, I go get tested, oh, I'm positive, and then I quarantine. But it may be that I've already missed the window by, of spread. I've already spread it to everybody I was going to spread it to. That's one group of people. And obviously, those people you know because you develop symptoms. But you're asking a different question, Ian, which is what about people who never develop symptoms at all? That's about 15, 20% of people in the population who get infected will never develop symptoms. That's a harder group to monitor for the obvious reasons that we're not testing them on a regular basis. But to the extent that we do, what we find is that they do have a period of time when they spread. We think those people tend to do less spreading because they don't have a lot of virus, because they have a low viral load, which may be why they're asymptomatic. But they can still spread. 
What's the time period of spread? We don't know, but probably three to five days. That's a reasonable guess. So if you come, if you get tested and you're positive and you feel fine, if you quarantine yourself, now CDC says after 10 days, just to be cautious, uh, it's not actually con- uh, quarantining, it's isolating. If you isolate yourself for 10 days, then you are definitely good to go. You're not going to be spreading it to other people. So mental model, most people spread for three to five days. Out to 10 days is really the, like, captures almost all of it. So people are rarely long-term spreaders. I mean, it's been described, but it's very rare. And most of the spreading happens in that pre-symptomatic period before you develop symptoms. Well, thank you. Uh, To our audience, as always, if you would like to pose a question to Dr. Jha, send it to gwmiller at providencejournal.com and write in the subject field, question for Dr. Ashish Jha. Ashish, thank you. Uh, This was, as always, informative, important, and uh, we'll see you in a week. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much and have a good week, Wayne. Stay safe. too. Bye-bye.